Welcome back to the Stock Car Racing Time Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Naiman. Today is Episode 4, Part 4, Prologue to the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. If you joined us for our previous three episodes, we've been doing driver previews for the upcoming 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season by taking a look back at driver's performance in the 1996 season. Today, we will take a look back at the top five points finishers in the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup standings and take a look at their hopes for bringing home the NASCAR Winston Cup championship in the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. The first driver we're going to discuss is the driver who finished fifth in points in the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup season, and that driver was Mark Martin. He was driving the number six Ford Thunderbird with sponsorship from Valvoline for Jack Roush Racing. In his 1996 season, Mark Martin failed to win a race, but he had 14 top five finishes, 23 top 10 finishes, had four poles, and had four did not finishes. Interestingly enough, all of his did not finishes occurred in the first 12 races of the season, and three were engine related. After 12 races, Mark was mired back in 13th in points. He had an outstanding conclusion to the season, even though he did not win a race. He had top 10s in in all of the final 15 races of the season, and he had a best finish of second three times. At Michigan, where he led 135 of the 200 laps, at the Charlotte Fall Race, and at Phoenix. When the season concluded, Mark Martin had lost the championship by 379 points. It was the first time that Mark Martin had not won a race since the 1988 season. Now, when we take a look back at Mark Martin's career, he was an excellent short track racer in the upper Midwest. He won the ASA championship in 1978 through 1980. That gave him his first opportunity in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. Driving the O2 car for Bud Reader, he started his first Winston Cup race at North Wilkesboro in April. He started from the fifth position, but mechanical problems relegated him to a 27th place finish. Impressively, he won two poles in the 1981 season. He won a pole at Nashville and finished 11th after leading 36 laps, and he also won the pole in the fall Richmond race and came home seventh. In addition, in the fall Martinsville race, Mark Barton ran third and led 40 laps. So for an individual who was just running a part-time schedule, he had gotten off to an excellent start, scoring a pair of top 10 finishes and having a top five too as well. For the 1982 season, Mark Martin would have the opportunity to drive full-time in the 02 Pontiac sponsored by Apache Stowe. He scored two top five finishes, a fifth at Dover, and a fifth at the season finale race at Riverside. He had eight top 10s and finished a respectable 14th in points. In the 1983 season, Mark Martin would be driving for Jim Stacy. And of course, Jim Stacy is an interesting individual in the history of NASCAR racing. The previous season, he had sponsored many different cars, up to five cars, but then financial issues struck. And eventually, in the 1983 season, he was owning and only sponsoring one car. Mark Martin drove the first eight races, but struggled and was eventually released and replaced by Morgan Shepard. He drove for a variety of owners in the 1983 season and had a best finish of third at Atlanta. With his struggles in 1983, 
Martin went back to run in the ASA series for the next couple of seasons. But in 1986 and 1987, he did run six races. And he got back into NASCAR racing by driving in the Bush Grand National Series in the 1987 season. He scored three wins and finished eighth in points. He also won the 1986 ASA Championship after returning to ASA Racing. In 1988, Mark Martin connected with Jack Roush, and he scored three top five finishes in NASCAR Wins the Cup Racing, had 10 top 10s, and finished 15th in points. He also had a career best finish of second in the Bristol Spring Race. In 1989, Mark Martin would finally break through with his first NASCAR Winston Cup victory. He started seventh in the Fall Rockingham race and led 101 laps on his way to his first career victory. Mark had 14 top five finishes, 18 top tens, and six poles. He finished third in points that season. Going into the final race of the season, he trailed Rusty Wallace by 78 points. In 1990, Mark Martin would have his best year to date. He'd win three races, have 16 top five finishes, 23 top tens, win three poles, and only have one did not finish. He started the season off strong with a victory in the spring race at Richmond after starting from the sixth position. He had eight finishes of seventh or better between the Darlington race in the spring and Sonoma. And then he went on to rip off 13 finishes or of 11th or better between the first Michigan race and the Wilkesboro race in the fall. He also won at Michigan and Wilkesboro that season. He held the points lead from Sonoma all the way to the Rockingham Fall race, which was 16 races. He left Rockingham with a 45-point lead over Dale Earnhardt. Unfortunately for Mark, Dale Earnhardt won the Phoenix race, and Mark finished just in 10th position. That gave Dale a six-point lead going into the season finale race in Atlanta. At Atlanta, Dale outdueled Mark with a third-place finish, and Mark Martin came home sixth. Dale Earnhardt captured the NASCAR Winston Cup championship by 26 points. Mark Martin had had an unbelievably consistent season, which is two finishes outside the top 20 all season but had narrowly missed out on the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. In 1991, Mark Martin would win one race. He'd have 14 top fives, 17 top 10 finishes, and five poles. But he would struggle more with consistency and have five did not finishes. This caused him to drop to sixth in points. He did win the season finale at Atlanta. But the second half of the season mainly found Mark between about fifth and sixth in the point standings. He was hoping that the 1992 season could rekindle his 1990 performance. He won two races, the Spring Martinsville race and the Fall Charlotte race. He had 10 top five finishes, 17 top tens, one pole, and five did not finishes. He finished sixth in points. And again, the majority of his time, he found himself in about the fifth to sixth point range for the second half of the NASCAR Winston Cup season. He went into the final race, the Hooters 500, in 1992 with a mathematical chance to win the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship, but he was 113 
points back going into the race. He had a difficult race and ended up finishing 191 points behind Alan Kowicki for the championship in sixth place. Mark Martin went into the 1993 season with hopes to improve his points position. It would be an excellent season. He would have a career high in wins with five victories. He would score 19 top 10 finishes. He would have five poles and had four did not finishes. This would result in a third point place finish in points, 367 points behind Dale Earnhardt. But the start of the season was difficult for Mark. He had five finishes outside the top 28 in the first 14 races and was just 12th in points. But he went on a tear in the summer. He actually won at that time a record tying four consecutive races, for, which is record tying for the modern era and NASCAR Cup history. He started out by winning from the pole at Watkins Glen. Then he won at Michigan. He also won from the pole at the Bristol Night Race. And in addition, he won a slightly shortened Southern 500 as darkness was coming on due to a lengthy rain delay to start the race. The four straight wins had given Mark momentum, but because of his difficult start to the season, he still was a fair amount behind in the point standings. He picked up a final win at Phoenix and again ended the season 439 points out of the championship. But there had been a lot of reason for optimism in the 1993 season. Mark had finished the season very strong, and he had won the most races in a single season in his career. He was looking forward to 1994 to be an even stronger season. In 1994, Mark picked up two victories. He won from the pole again at Watkins Glen. He also picked up a victory in the season finale at Atlanta. He scored 15 top five finishes, 20 top tens, but had a more difficult season with eight did not finishes. Although I will say that two of those did not finishes were running out of gas at Daytona 500, finishing 13th, and a crash late in the Dover Fall race where he still picked up a 19th place finish. He finished second in points, but wasn't anywhere close to Dale Earnhardt, finishing 444 points out of the championship. In the 1995 season, Mark doubled his win total from 1994. That season, he picked up four wins. He won the Winston 500 at Talladega. He also won from the pole at Watkins Glen, won the fall race at North Wilkesboro, and won the fall race at Charlotte as he picked up his 18th career victory. He had 19 top five finishes, 22 top tens, four poles, and one did not finish. He finished fourth in points um, and was actually only 159 points behind after Watkins Glen and was third in points, but bad finishes at Michigan and the Southern 500 dropped him back. Ultimately, he finished 294 points out of the championship. Of course, we talked about the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup season for Mark Martin. Although he had not won any races, he certainly had had an excellent finish this season, finishing in the top 10 in all 15 races. So certainly going into the 1997 season, Although they had not won a race, Mark Martin looked like he had a lot of good momentum. He ran strong at a variety of tracks, good at short tracks, good at Darlington, good at Rockingham, and he was certainly hoping that the 1997 season would place him higher in points and also get him back to victory lane. 
The fourth place finisher in the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup point standings was Dale Earnhardt. That season, he captured two victories, had 13 top five finishes and 17 top tens, and captured two pole positions. The story of the 1996 season for Dale would be a tale of two seasons. His strong performance in the first 17 races and the difficulty that he experienced after that horrific accident on the front stretch at Talladega, which left him injured and struggling through the final 13 races of the season. Earnhardt started out the season strong by winning the pole for the Daytona 500. But again, it was not to be in the 500, as he finished second to Dale Jarrett, making him now 0 out of 18 at Daytona. The next race would be at Rockingham, and Dale would go there and win the race, picking up a victory at the spring race. After difficulty at Richmond with mechanical problems, he finished outside the top 30. He bounced back for a strong day at Atlanta, winning the race. Earnhardt had won two of the first four races and served notice that he was one of the favorites to pick up his eighth NASCAR Winston Cup championship. He did excellent in the first 17 races of the season, picking up 11 top five finishes and 12 top tens and having just two finishes outside the top 14. The race we already mentioned at Richmond in an engine problem at Pocono where he finished 32nd. Dale held the points lead from the spring Martinsville race until the Pepsi 400 at Daytona in July. Unfortunately, at Talladega, Earnhardt would be involved in a horrific accident. When Sterling Marlin and Ernie Irvin got together and turned Earnhardt head, in, head on into the front stretch wall on the trioval at Talladega, Earnhardt would end up breaking his collarbone and dislocating his sternum. He would run the Brickyard 400 by qualifying the car, but the plan was for Earnhardt to get out of the car because he was in so much pain. They had a relief driver, and Mike Skinner stepped in the car and did an admirable job picking up a 15th place finish for Dale Earnhardt and keeping him in the thick of the NASCAR Winston Cup championship. The following week, Earnhardt went to Watkins Glen. There were significant concerns about how Earnhardt would hold up at Watkins Glen, especially at a physically demanding track where you had to turn both right and left. Earnhardt shocked everyone on Friday, winning the pole for the butt at the Glen. And then on race day, he stayed in the car the entire day. He had that famous quote after winning the pole saying that it hurt so good. And he came home with a strong sixth place finish. Earnhardt looked like Superman as he headed toward Michigan, but the next four races would spell difficult for Earnhardt. He would struggle at Michigan as well as the physically demanding tracks at Bristol and Darlington and Richmond, missing the top 10 in all of those races. He finally would pick up his first top five finish of the second half of the season with a second place run at North Wilkesboro. This led to a strong finish to the season for Earnhardt. In the final five races of the season, he scored four top 10 finishes with a worst finish of 12th. In the end, he finished fourth in points, 330 points behind Terry Labonte. Dale got his start in cup racing by driving the number eight car and finishing 22nd in the World 600 in the 1975 season. He made a few starts between 1975 and 1977 with a best finish of 19th at Atlanta. In 1978, Dale had the opportunity to drive the number 96 car for Will Cronkite. He scored an impressive 7th place finish at the Firecracker 400, the July race at Daytona, and ran 12th at Talladega, too, as well. In 1979, Dale had finally secured a full-time ride driving the number 2 car for Ron Osterlund. 
He picked up his first career victory in the Bristol Spring Race. He had 11 top five finishes, 17 top 10 finishes, and won full four poles. He finished an impressive seventh in points. And this was in spite of missing four races due to a broken collarbone when he crashed at Pocono in June. Dale also captured the Rookie of the Year that season. In the 1980 season, Dale would pick up five victories, winning at Atlanta, Bristol, Nashville, the Fall Martinsville race, and the Fall Charlotte race. He scored 19 top five finishes and 24 top tens. He had an average finish of eighth, and with a fifth place finish at the season finale race in Ontario, California, Dale Earnhardt captured his first NASCAR Winston Cup championship, beating out the three-time champion, Cale Yarbrough, by 19 points. The following season in 1981 would be a disappointing season for Dale. He would not win any races. He would score nine top five finishes, 17 top tens, and finish seventh in points. Ron Osterlin would sell his interest in the team, and Dale would briefly drive for J.D. Stacy before Richard Childress assumed ownership of the team. But as the 81 season concluded, Richard Childress had told Dale that he didn't believe that his team was strong enough to support the excellent driver that Dale was. He encouraged Dale to seek out a different ride while Richard Childress tried to improve his team. So in the 1982 season, Dale, Moore, Dale Earnhardt went to drive for the legendary car owner Bud Moore in the number 15 car, which was a Ford, and had sponsorship from Wrangler Jean Company. That season, Dale picked up one victory, winning the Spring Darlington race. He had seven top five finishes, and he had 12 top tens. He finished 12th in points. Earnhardt would be back again driving for Bud Moore in the 83 season. This time, he would win two races, winning at Nashville and winning the July race at Talladega Super Speedway. He picked up nine top five finishes, 14 top tens, and improved to eighth in points. In 1984, Dale would reunite with Richard Childress and would drive the number three car. That season, he picked up two wins, he had 12 top five finishes, he had 22 top tens, and he had his best finish in points since his championship in 1980. He finished fourth in points. He won the summer race at Talladega once again, and won the season finale at Atlanta. In 1985, Dale would double his win total. He'd win four races, he'd have 10 top five finishes, and he'd have 16 top tens. He would drop to eighth in points due to having nine did-not finishes, many of them engine-related problems. He did sweep the Bristol races and also picked up a win in the Richmond Spring Race as well as winning the Martinsville Fall, fall Race. All four of his victories were short-track victories. Despite the engine problems, the team felt like they had a lot of momentum of how well they ran, and 1986 would be a great season for Dale. He'd pick up five wins, including winning the World 600 at Charlotte for the first time in his career. He'd have 16 top five finishes and 23 top tens, and he would pick up his second NASCAR Winston Cup championship. 1987 would only get better. This may be one of the best seasons of Dale Earnhardt's career, and if you look at the statistics in terms of average finish, it may be one of the greatest seasons in the history of NASCAR Cup racing. 
Dale Earnhardt won 11, picked up 11 wins in a 29 race schedule, and he won 11 of the first 22 races to start the season. He had 21 top five finishes and 24 top tens. He started out the season by winning six of the first eight races. This included a complete sweep of the short tracks. He won at Richmond, Bristol, North Wilkesboro, and Martinsville. He also won the Southern 500. His average finish would be just slightly over five, and he won the championship over Bill Elliott by incredible 489 points. Dale Earnhardt now had three NASCAR Winston Cup championships, including two back-to-back championships. And it was clear after getting their, their team organized that Richard Childress was providing an outstanding car for Dale and the future looked extremely bright. In 1988, Dale would change colors and now have his familiar number three GM Goodwrench Chevrolet. The familiar black car. That season, Dale picked up three victories. He had 13 top 10 finishes and he had 19 top 10s. I'm sorry, 13 top five finishes and 19 top 10s. He finished third in points and he won at Atlanta, Martinsville, and the Bristol Night Race. That season, he lost out in the championship to Bill Elliott by 232 points. In 1989, Dale would win five times. He would pick up 14 top five finishes, 19 top 10s, and finish second in points. He swept both races at Dover, picked up another Southern 500 victory, and won the season finale at Atlanta. He would narrowly miss out on the championship, being beaten by Rusty Wallace by 12 points and finishing second. One race that many Earnhardt fans point to as costing him the NASCAR Winston Cup championship was the fall race at North Wilkesboro. He and Ricky Rudd were battling in a tight race on the final lap going into turns one and two. Both Rudd and Earnhardt made contact and spun around. That opened up the door for Jeff Bodine to win the race. And the points that Earnhardt lost in that race cost him an opportunity to win the NASCAR Winston Cup championship. So after a narrow miss to the championship in 1989, Earnhardt was extremely motivated to pick up his fourth NASCAR Winston Cup championship in the 1990 season. It would turn out to be an outstanding season for Dale, maybe only second to his 1987 season. He picked up nine wins and had 18 top five finishes and 23 top tens. He swept both Darlington races, picking up another Southern 500 victory and also won at Talladega as well as won the Pepsi 400 at Daytona. It would be a tight points battle the entire season with Mark Martin. But Earnhardt was able to take the lead in the points away from Mark by winning at Phoenix the next to last race of the season while Mark Martin came home 10th. He then outran Martin at Atlanta, finishing third, and clinched the NASCAR Winston Cup championship by 26 points. Much like Earnhardt had gone back-to-back with championships in 86 and 87, he looked forward to the 1991 season with hopes of winning another NASCAR Winston Cup championship. Earnhardt would pick up four wins, 14 top fives, and 21 top tens on his way to his fifth NASCAR Winston Cup championship, beating the second-place driver, Ricky Rudd, by 195 points. Earnhardt would look forward to the 1992 NASCAR Winston Cup season 
hoping to win three straight NASCAR Winston Cup championships. It had only been done once in the modern era by Cale Yarborough. But 1992 would ultimately be a very difficult season for Dale Earnhardt. He would win just one race at the Coca-Cola 600, pick up six top five finishes and 15 top tens. He struggled significantly in the second half of the season and finished just 12th in points. After the disappointing 1992, Earnhardt was looking for a bounce-back season in 1993, and he found it in resounding fashion. Earnhardt won six times. He had 17 top five finishes and 21 top tens. He won both the Pepsi 400 at Daytona, and he also won the Coke 600 on Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. He ultimately won the championship by 80 points over Rusty Wallace. He now had six NASCAR Winston Cup championships. He needed one more championship to tie Richard Petty and two more championships to be the all-time leader in championships. In the 1994 season, Earnhardt would win four times. He would pick up 20 top five finishes and 25 top tens. There wouldn't be a lot of drama for the NASCAR Winston Cup championship because unfortunately, Ernie Irvin suffered that hard practice crash at the Michigan Speedway in August. He suffered a significant brain injury and had to sit out the rest of the season. That gave Earnhardt an enormous cushion, and he went on to win the NASCAR Winston Cup championship, winning races at Darlington, and also winning the spring race at Talladega, the Winston 500 as well. He clinched his championship by winning at Rockingham, beating Rick Mass by about a car length to a car length and half. Arnard had won a seventh championship and had tied the King Richard Petty. Going into the 1995 NASCAR Winston Cup season, Earnhardt was the overwhelming favorite to clinch his eighth NASCAR Winston Cup championship. Other contenders would likely be Rusty Wallace and Mark Martin, but Wallace had struggled with consistency, and it was questionable if Martin could win enough to overcome Earnhardt. In addition, Ernie Irvin would not run the entire 1995 season due to the injuries that he suffered in a practice crash in 1994 in August at Michigan. It didn't seem like Hendrick Motorsports with Terry Labonte or Jeff Gordon would have enough consistency to be able to overcome Earnhardt. Dale Earnhardt in the 1995 season would pick up five victories, winning his first road course race at Sonoma. He would win the second ever Brickyard 400 and also won the season finale at Atlanta. But unfortunately, Earnhardt fell just short of his record eighth championship, losing the championship to Jeff Gordon in only his third ever season by 34 points. Earnhardt had had an excellent season, but some inconsistency that popped up in the middle of the season had him fall just short of the championship. He charged hard in the final four races, but didn't have enough to overcome the points lead that Gordon had built up. We had already discussed the 1996 season and then how it had a great start for Earnhardt. But after the Talladega race, he was clearly battling through injury and tried to fight through while he was still mathematically alive for the championship, but it just didn't work out. Going into 1997, much of the media was pointing to a much healthier Dale Earnhardt. In addition to that, he had Larry McReynolds as his crew chief. McReynolds had had significant success being the crew chief for both Davey Allison and Ernie Irvin. Many thought with, Mc with McReynolds' excellent ability and Earnhardt being refreshed and healthy, that 1997 would be the year that Dale would finally capture that eighth NASCAR Winston Cup championship. In addition to that, Dale was hoping to finally break through and win the Daytona 500 in his 19th try. 
he had come so close in the 1990s. He lost the lead and turned three of the 1990 Daytona 500 when he had a tire problem, and Derek Cope went on to have the upset victory. He was leading the race in 1991 when he spun late in the race and Ernie Irvin won. In 1993, he finished second to Dale Jarrett as Jarrett passed Earnhardt, coming to the white flag. In the 1995 season, he again was second, this time to Sterling Marlin. In the 1996 Daytona 500, he again was second to Dale Jarrett. The goals were clear for the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. Pick up his first career win in the Daytona 500 and be win a record eighth NASCAR Winston Cup championship. The third place finisher in the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup standings was Dale Jarrett. That season, he piloted the number 88 Ford Quality Care car for Robert Yates. Dale Jarrett in the 1995 season had driven the number 28 car as Ernie Irvin continued to recover from injuries that he suffered in Michigan in a practice crash in 1994 in August. Robert Yates was impressed with Dale Jarrett's 1995 performance that he decided to start a second team, the number 88 team, and Jarrett christened the new team in impressive fashion. In the first race of the season at the Daytona 500, Jarrett won from the seventh position, capturing his second Daytona 500 in four seasons and giving him two Daytona 500 victories with two different teams. Jarrett kept up the strong runs with a second-place run at Rockingham and Richmond, but he would struggle through the next six races, scoring just one top-10 finish, a sixth-place run at Bristol. He did lead the point standings through the seventh race of the season at North Wilkesboro. Unfortunately for Dale, at the eighth race of the season at Martinsville, he suffered a 29th-place finish and lots the points lead. He bounced back the next week at Talladega, and finished second from the outside pole. He narrowly missed out on capturing the second leg of the Winston Million. A couple weeks later, on Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte, Dale Jarrett started from the 15th position and captured the victory in the Coca-Cola 600. He had now won two legs of the Winston Million and would have a chance to win the million dollars when he ran in the Southern 500 later in the season. Unfortunately, Jarrett didn't get to build on the momentum from his Charlotte victory. He had two of his worst finishes back-to-back. He crashed at Dover and finished 36 and had an early mechanical problem at Pocono and suffered a 38th place finish. Jared would get the momentum back with solid runs at Daytona, Loudoun, and Pocono, and Talladega as well. All those finishes were sixth or better. And then he came to the Brickyard 400. He was able to outduel his teammate Ernie Irvin and pick up the win despite starting from the 24th position. You could argue at this point that Jared had won three of the biggest races this season, the Daytona 500, the Coca-Cola 600, and the Brickyard 400. He struggled at Watkins Glen to a 24th place finish, but the following week at Michigan, he made a late pass on Mark Martin and picked up the victory. That would be Dale Jarrett's fourth victory of the season. Coming into the 1996 season, he only had three career victories. Jarrett would keep continue to run strong, as he picked up a fourth-place run at Bristol, and then came the Southern 500 at Darlington. Jarrett won the pole and looked to be very strong in practice. He was leading the race easily in the early going, but unfortunately, he slipped in oil that was put down by Brett Brodine and crashed between turns three and four. The crew was able to make repairs, but Jarrett's car was never the same, and he finished in 14th place four laps down. Jarrett would continue to run strong for the rest of the season, And in the final five races, 
He finished in the top eight in all of them. He picked up two third-place finishes at North Wilkesboro and Charlotte, a second-place run at Rockingham, and a second-place run in the season finale at Atlanta. Unfortunately, he fell just short of the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. Jared finished third in the points, 89 points behind Terry Labonte. But for a brand-new team, this was an excellent season for Dale Jarrett, and he certainly was looking forward to 1997. If we look back at how Dale's career started, he got his first big chance um, when he stepped into the number 18 car for Eric Freelander after he replaced Tommy Ellis. North Wilkesboro was his first race. He picked up two top 10 finishes that season, running 10th in the Bristol Spring Race and also 10th in the Martinsville Fall Race. He was 26 in points. In 1988, Dale Jarrett patched together a full season driving for three different car owners. The majority of his time, he drove the number 29 car sponsored by Hardy's for Kale Yarbrough. At that time, Kale was running a partial schedule and Dale filled, and Dale ran the races that Kale did not plan to run. He also drove the number one car for Haas Ellington at the Daytona 500 and also ran in the Coca-Cola 600 for Buddy Arrington as well. He ended up finishing 23rd in points. In 1989, he would be in the Hardys ride full-time. He picked up two top five finishes, He finishing fifth at the Fall Martinsville race and at Phoenix. He had five top ten finishes, and he finished 24th in points. Dale Jarrett would start out the 1990 season without a full-time NASCAR Winston Cup ride. He was driving in the Bush Series when Neil Bonnet was involved in a serious wreck in the Trans-South 500 at Darlington. The Wood Brothers tapped Dale Jarrett to drive the number 21 car for the rest of the season. He picked up one top five finish, a fourth place finish in the season finale at Atlanta, had seven top tens, and finished 25th in points. But remember, he did not compete in the first five races of the season. With Neil Bonnet still not healthy enough to come back, Jarrett was given the full-time ride for 1991, again driving a number 21 car. He would pick up his first career win in exciting fashion. He and Davey Allison dueled in the August race at Michigan, battling fender to fender on the last lap, and Jarrett was able to edge out Davey Allison and pick up his first career win. In addition, he scored three top five finishes, eight top tens, he had nine DNFs, and he finished 17th in points. In the 1992 season, Dale Jarrett would be driving the number 18 green and black interstate battery Chevrolet for Joe Gibbs. This was the first season for Joe Gibbs to earn a car in the NASCAR Winston Cup Series. That season, Dale Jarrett picked up two top five finishes, eight top tens, and finished 19th in points. He had a best finish of second at Bristol, and he was third at the Pepsi 400 in July. In the 1993 season, Dale Jarrett won the opening Daytona 500 by outdueling Dale Earnhardt. He passed Earnhardt coming to the white flag, picking up his second career victory. And of course, everyone remembers the famous call of his dad, Ned Jarrett, the announcer on CBS, calling Dale home to win the race. This would be a career season for Dale Jarrett. He would have 13 top five finishes, 18 top tens, and finish a career best fourth in points. He picked up four top six finishes in the first five races, but unfortunately had two difficult finishes at Bristol and North Wilkesboro. Ultimately, he also picked up third-place finishes at the Winston 500 at Talladega and the Coca-Cola 600, but he had just one top 10 in the final 10 races. Despite it, 
Despite this, it had seemed to be a breakthrough season for Jared, and he was looking forward to big things in 1994. Unfortunately, 1994 would be a very disappointing season for Jared. He would pick up one win at the Mellow Yellow 500 in the Charlotte Fall Race, but he had just four top five finishes and nine top tens. His top tens had been cut in half from the previous season when in 1993 he had had 18 top 10 finishes. As the 1994 season concluded, Dale Jarrett felt that he was a bit of a crossroads. He'd had a career year in 1993, picking up that Daytona 500 victory and finishing fourth in points. But the other two seasons with Joe Gibbs had been fairly mediocre. He knew that Ernie Irvin would not be able to return to drive the number 28 car for the 1995 season. And Jarrett was hoping that he would have the opportunity to drive for Robert Yates. He was still under contract with Joe Gibbs. But Gibbs agreed if Jarrett could find a suitable replacement for himself, that he would release Jarrett from his contract. Fortunately for Jarrett, he was able to convince Bobby Delvonic to go and drive for Joe Gibbs. So in the 1995 season, he would be driving the number 28 Texaco Haviland Ford for Robert Yates Racing. That season, Dale picked up a single victory. He had nine top five finishes. He had 14 top tens. He had one pole, and he finished 13th in points. He won the pole for the season opening race at the Daytona 500 and finished fifth. He also had fifth place runs at Rockingham and Atlanta, but he had seven finishes outside the top 10 in eight races, including four finishes of fourth of 30th or worse. This difficult stretch dropped him from seventh to 16th in points. He was able to win the July Pocono race by fuel mileage after starting 15th. He finished second at the Die Hard 500 at Talladega in July. He had an impressive third-place finish at the Brickyard 400, too, as well. Also, he was showing improvements on the short tracks, having good runs at Bristol and Richmond, uh, as well as picking up a top-five finish at Charlotte, too, as well. So, for the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season, Dale Jarrett would be back in the familiar number 88 car, sponsored by Ford Quality Care. His owner was Robert Yates, and he believed that he would be a serious contender for the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup season. And there was no reason to think otherwise. The team had gained an extra year of experience. Dale had had an excellent season in 1996. He was showing improvement in some of the tracks that he tended to struggle in, and he seriously wanted to pick, finally win the NASCAR Winston Cup championship. It looked like everything would be in place to do it, and Jarrett knew that consistency would be key, but also winning races would be key, especially when you had to go against Jeff Gordon, too, as well. So he was hoping to build on his four victories and hoping that this might be the season that he finally would capture his first NASCAR Winston Cup championship. Dale Jarrett believed that he'd be a serious contender for the 1997 NASCAR Winston Cup championship. The previous season, in 1996, he had picked up four victories after only winning three races in his entire career before that. In addition, he seemed to be improving on a lot of different tracks. The short tracks, which had seemed to be a weakness in the past, Jared had gotten much better. He had had much better finishes at both Bristol and North Wilkesboro, although he was yet to win a short track race in his NASCAR Winston Cup career. One track where Jared could certainly look to improve was Martinsville. In the 1996 season, he was just 29th and 16th in the two races there. In addition, he struggled on the road courses, finishing 12th at Sonoma and 24th at Watkins Glen. 
Bringing up these four finishes might seem like nitpicking, but when you lose the championship by just 89 points, every single point will count, and you need to run strong at every possible track. If Jared could pick up a couple more wins, it might help him to be able to beat out a driver like Jeff Gordon or Terry Labonte in the 1997 Winston Cup season. Finishing second in the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup Series points was Jeff Gordon. That season, he won 10 races, had 21 top five finishes, 24 top tens, and five did not finishes. He lost the championship to his teammate, Terry Labonte, by 37 points. Gordon's title defense of his 1995 NASCAR Winston Cup championship got off to a slow start. He qualified eighth at the Daytona 500, but just 13 laps in was involved in a crash and finished 42nd. Things didn't get much better the next week at Rockingham. Gordon qualified on the outside pole, but a third into the race, he blew an engine and finished 40th. After the first two races, Gordon was all the way back in 43rd in points, already 275 points behind the points leader. Fortunately for Gordon, his luck would turn around in the next six races as he would post finishes all in the top three. He went to Richmond, started on the outside pole, led 124 laps, and picked up his first victory of the season. The next week at Atlanta, Gordon had a strong third-place finish. At Darlington in the Trans-South Financial 400, Gordon was able to outlast everyone by saving enough gas to come home with the victory after leading 189 of 293 laps. Gordon made it back-to-back wins the next week at Bristol. He started eighth and won the race, leading 148 of the 342 laps that were run as the race was stopped early due to rain. At North Wilkesboro, Gordon nearly picked up a third straight victory, but finished second, narrowly trailing Terry Labonte to the finish line. The following week at Martinsville, Gordon had one of his best runs at the track. He led 211 laps, but his car faded in the final 20 laps of the race, and he had to settle for a third-place finish. Despite the disappointment of leading many laps at Martinsville and not coming home victorious, Gordon had made a major advancement in points. Six races later, after being 43rd in points and 275 out of the lead, he was just 76 points behind and had moved all the way up to second in points and had picked up three victories along the way. Unfortunately, with the story of the 1996 season, the next week Gordon ran into trouble. At Talladega at the Winston 500, he made contact along the front stretch with Mark Martin, and the cars got three wide and never could get organized correctly. Gordon crashed and triggered a large wreck in the first turn. This, of course, was the famous crash where Ricky Craven got thrown up in the air and then hit as his car came back down out of the catch fencing. Gordon had his third DNF of the season and finished 33rd and dropped to fourth in points. The next week at Sonoma, he came home sixth, but that finish was a bit of a disappointment because he was leading when the final restart happened, but unfortunately didn't get his tires all the way cleaned off. At Charlotte, Gordon won the pole and finished fourth. The following week at Dover, Gordon dominated from the pole. He led 307 of the 500 laps, and he made it back-to-back victories from the pole when at Pocono, he led 94 of the 200 laps. After a sixth-place run at Michigan, it was time for the Pepsi 400 in Daytona. Gordon started from the pole and finished third in the rain shortened race. But again, problems popped up. At Loudoun, Gordon had an ignition problem late in the race and finished 34th. The second Pocono race gave Gordon a 7th place finish. 
and he was looking for a better effort on the restrictor plates as he headed to Talladega. He'd make a daring pass of Dale Jarrett late in the race, a race that was shortened due to rain earlier in the day and impending dusk. He won the race and at that point had picked up his sixth victory of the season, and he had retaken the points lead. But his points lead once again would be short-lived. Although he won the pole for the Brickyard 400, he crashed early in the race and finished 37th. At Watkins Glen, Gordon finished fourth, and he picked up a fifth-place finish at Michigan. Then he went on another impressive streak. At Bristol, he finished a close second to Rusty Wallace. The following week was the Southern 500. Gordon qualified on the outside pole and hung around all day. Hutch Strickland was leading the race, but started to struggle as his engine began to lose power. Gordon was able to pass Strickland in the final 20 laps of the race and pick up back-to-back Southern 500 victories as he led 52 of the 367 laps. Terry Labonte had had difficulty in that race with overheating and finished outside the top 20. The next race was at Richmond. Gordon captured the outside pole and was narrowly nipped by Ernie Irvin, losing the race by approximately a car length. At Dover, Gordon got the season sweep. He started third and won the race, leading 204 of the 500 laps. His teammate, Terry Labonte, again ran into problems, finishing outside the top 15 due to a problem with the cut tire multiple times during the race. Gordon had now regained the points lead. The next week, the series headed to the short track of Martinsville and Gordon picked up his first-ever career victory at Martinsville. He started from the 10th position and led 133 of the 500 laps, and he held off his teammate on a late-race restart. The following week, the series would go to North Wilkesboro as they would run the final race at North Wilkesboro Speedway in the Cup Series. Gordon started on the outside pole and dominated the race. He led 207 of the 400 laps and held off Dale Earnhardt for the victory. Gordon had now won three races in a row, and in impressive six stretch, in impressive six races, he had won four and finished second in the other two. At this point, Gordon was leading his teammate Terry Labonte in the points by 111 points, and there were just four races left in the season. It looked like Gordon was going to have back-to-back NASCAR Winston Cup championships, but as the season had happened earlier, it seemed like every time Gordon was about to pull away, disaster struck. He ran into mechanical and overheating problems at Charlotte and was relegated to a 31st place finish. His, his once daunting 111 point lead was reduced to a single point. The next week, the series went to Rockingham and Gordon struggled. This probably was his worst run of the season where he didn't have a mechanical problem. He started third, but finished just 12th in the race, a lap down. Meanwhile, Terry Labonte came home with a third place finish and Gordon had lost the points lead. The next week at Phoenix, Gordon got a top five and finished fifth, but unfortunately for him, Terry Labonte finished third, and Gordon went into the Atlanta race likely needing a victory and needing for Terry Labonte to probably finish somewhere in the back part of the top 10. Gordon had a strong run. He started from the outside pole and would eventually finish third in the race after overcoming early, an early wheel problem in the race but it would not be enough to win the NASCAR Winston Cup championship. He lost out in the championship by 37 points to Terry Labonte. So if you're unfamiliar with how the points standings worked at that time, um, basically 175 points went to the winner of the race. Anyone who led a lap got five points as well. Um, and then the individual who led the most laps got an additional five bonus points. 
So that's then the positions in the one through six drop by five points. And then position six through 11 drop by four points. And then positions 11 through 43rd drop by three points. So if you started the race and finished last and somebody won the race and led the most laps, each race could have a swing of approximately 151 points. So Terry Labonte winning the championship over Gordon by about 37 points meant that he won the championship by about eight positions over the entire season or nine positions over the entire season. For Gordon, it was an impressive season in terms of win. He was the first driver since Rusty Wallace in 1993 to pick up 10 wins in a season. He won at five new tracks, Talladega, Pocono, Martinsville, Wilkesboro, and Richmond, all tracks where he had not won in the past. He had an unbelievable record on the short tracks that season. He picked up four wins. He was second in the Bristol night race, second in the Richmond night race, second in the North Wilkesboro race in the spring, and third in the Martinsville spring race. So in the eight short track races, his worst finish was a lowly third at Martinsville. But certainly the mechanical problems and the wrecks cost Gordon a chance at the championship. He crashed out of the Daytona 500 and the Winston 500, two poor finishes on restrictor plate tracks. He had an engine problem at Rockingham, a mechanical problem at Loudoun. He crashed at Indy due to a cut tire, and he also had that overheating problem at Charlotte. If you look back, a lot of people talk that Terry Labonte won the championship because he was simply more consistent than Gordon. But as we'll talk about Terry LeBond in a second, if you actually look at the DNFs, they were about even in the DNFs. The difference was a couple of the races where Labonte suffered DNFs were tracks where there was higher attrition and he didn't suffer quite as poor a finish. So when we look back on the career of Jeff Gordon, he of course made his first Winston Cup start in 1992 at the season finale, the Hooters 500 in Atlanta. Of course, this was is one of the greatest races in NASCAR history. It was the final race for the King, Richard Petty. Alan Kowicki outdueled Bill Elliott and Davey Allison for the championship. For Gordon, he started in the 21st position, was involved in a crash, and finished 31st. So going into the 1993 season, Jeff Gordon would be driving the DuPont Automotive, Automotive Refinishes Chevrolet full-time for Rick Hendrick. Now, I wanted to have a little note about Gordon driving for Hendrick and some of the talks about just the equipment that Jeff Gordon had stepped into um, and how good was the equipment that he had stepped into and had he immediately stepped into a championship tending car too as well. Um, and this is a little bit of area contention to me. Um, being a Jeff Gordon fan, I always felt a little sensitive that people always talked about how good his equipment was and felt like they tried to diminish his driving skill um, or talked about, how amazing Ray Evernham was and Ray Evernham was an absolutely amazing crew chief and Jeff Gordon's pit crew was amazing and he had great engineers and chassis builders, but I felt like some people just tried to sell his driving talent short and just talk about his car. So my comment on Jeff Gordon stepping in the 24 car in the 1993 season is as a rookie, he certainly stepped into one of the better cars when you look at the history of NASCAR Winston cup racing, but I think it's unfair to say that in his rookie season, he stepped into a championship contending car. If you look at Rick Hendrick at that time, um, you know, he had had a host of different people drive for him. He had had Jeff Bodine drive for him. He, of course, had Tim Richmond, who drove for him in his prime. He had Kenny Schrader. 
He had Darren Waltrip drive for him. He had Ricky Rudd drive for them. And if you look for the most part, most of the points finishes were in the top 10, typically somewhere between about fourth and eighth in points. Now, Tip Richmond in 1986 finished third in points. And you also had Ricky Rudd in 1991 finishing second in points in the number five car. But generally, Hendrick cars were a solid top 10 team, but they were no means a top championship contending team year in, year out. That would go to teams like Richard Charles as number three, driven by Dale Earnhardt, Rusty Wallace in the number two car, um, the number 28 car of Robert Yates when Davey Allison or Ernie Irvin drove it. So I think it's fair to say that Gordon stepped into a very good car. There's no doubt about that. But I think it's also fair to say that some people maybe, especially the first couple seasons of Gordon's career, exaggerate how good his equipment was. And I'll also say that Gordon was fortunate to step into pretty good equipment. But many of his contemporaries, after a couple seasons, got into equipment that was probably pretty equal to Gordon. So I'll give an example of a couple drivers that were came in, this, in the 1993 season as a rookie or in the following season. So Bobby Labonte uh, got his start in the 1993 season driving for Bill Davis. Um, after two seasons, in 1995, he got to drive for Joe Gibbs, a very good team. Um, when you look at Ricky Craven, he spent the 95 and 96 season driving a number 41 car for Larry Hedrick. By 1997, he was driving for Rick Hendrick. If you look at Jeff Burton, he spent the 1994 and 1995 seasons, his first two seasons of Winston Cup, driving the number eight car for the Stavola brothers. By 1997, he was driving for Jack Roush. So Gordon probably got a little bit more of a head start by getting in a really good, solid top 10 car right off the bat in his rookie season. But again, I emphasize this was by no means a championship contending car from the start. He was driving for a brand new team for Rick Hendrick, although Rick Hendrick had run multiple car teams in the past, but it wasn't like he was taking over an already established car. It was a completely new team that had to be built. Now, I will say this. Gordon's success early in his career paved the way, I think, for a lot of Winston Cup owners to take a look at what they were deciding when they were putting new drivers in the car, where previously it seemed like a lot of owners' attitude was to use the lesser teams kind of as a farm system and then to poach drivers away. A lot of owners began to realize that it made sense to put a driver in the car, in their car as a rookie, build the team around them, and then have them already working with the culture of the team instead of having the, the driver drive for someone else and then come over after a couple seasons. And we started to see this begin kind of in the late 90s. So in 1999, Tony Stewart drives the 20 car in his rookie season for Joe Gibbs. In 2000, Matt Kenseth is in the 17 for Jack Roush. In 2000, Dale Earnhardt's in the number eight car for his father at Dale Earnhardt Incorporated. You get Jimmy Johnson and Ryan Newman in 2002, both stepping into Penske Racing and Hendrick Motorsports. So I think Jeff Gordon, you can certainly say, opened the door for younger drivers. He obviously opened the door for drivers from diverse backgrounds. And he definitely opened the door for rookie drivers to get into better equipment and not have to prove themselves for a couple seasons. So when you look at the 1993 season for Jeff Gordon, he picked up seven top five finishes that season. He had 11 top tens. He picked up one pole in the Charlotte fall race, but he had 11 DNFs and eventually finished 14th in points. 
The season got off to a great start. He actually won the Twin 125 qualifying race at Daytona. He started the Daytona 500 from the third position and ran up front the whole day. He led two laps. He was in the lead draft as, as the cars came down for the final lap. He decided to stick with Dale Earnhardt, which in this case didn't work out for him as Dale Jarrett passed him, as did the rest of the lead draft. But Gordon came home with an impressive top five finish in just his second career NASCAR Winston Cup start, finishing fifth at the Daytona 500. The next week at Rockingham, he'd run into engine problems, but he'd have a solid sixth place run at Richmond and an extremely strong run at Atlanta. Gordon started fourth that day. He led 54 laps and finished fourth. A late race mishap in the pits cost Gordon a shot to finish higher. Uh, many people point to this race as a race that Gordon could have won in his rookie season, but Morgan Shepard was able to make it on fuel mileage. So even if Gordon had not had problems pulling into the pits on his final pit stop, he likely would have finished second. Instead, he finished fourth. Gordon actually ran well early in the Trans-South 500 at Darlington, but ran into a crash when there was a exchange of pit stops, green flag pit stops, and he was on... Um, Drivers were coming out on newer tires, and a car just misjudged and got into Gordon. At Bristol, he crashed, but it was late in the race, and he finished 17th. The short track season continued to go poorly with a 34th place run at Wilkesboro. The next few weeks, Gordon had some decent finishes, and he came to Charlotte. He qualified 21st, but had one of the best runs of his NASCAR Winston Cup career to date. He led three laps and finished second to Dale Earnhardt. Gordon would also pick up a second place finish to his teammate, Ricky Rudd, at Michigan. He would run fifth in the Pepsi 400 at Daytona. After a couple tough finishes at Pocono and Talladega and Watkins Glen, he finished third in the second race at Michigan in August. After this point, Gordon would really struggle down the stretch. He would only score two more top 10 finishes. He would be 10th at Richmond, and he would have a fifth place finish at Charlotte, where he picked up his first career pole, in October and the Mellow Yellow 500, and he led one lap. After the Charlotte race, Gordon was 10th in points, but his final three races of the season would be finishes outside the top 21, and ultimately Gordon wrapped up his rookie season, finishing 14th in points. In the 1994 season, Gordon would pick up two wins, he'd have seven top five finishes, he'd have 14 top 10s, He'd have one pole position, and he'd finish eighth in points, and F10 did not finish his. He had a difficult start to the season. After a good run at Daytona, he struggled at most of the other races and was just 18th in points after the first 10 races. But Gordon had a magical day at the Coca-Cola 600 on Memorial Day weekend in Charlotte. He started from the pole, and although he led six, only 16 laps, he picked up his first-ever NASCAR Winston Cup win. The key moment was on the final pit stop. It was under the green flag. All the other contenders took on four tires. Ray Evernham made the call for Gordon to only take on two tires. The race was being called, uh, covered by TBS, and Richard Petty was one of the color announcers. Interestingly enough, he said that this move would not pay off, but Gordon actually maintained his speed after the two-tire stop, and Rusty Wallace wasn't ever able to catch him. It was an extremely emotional moment for Jeff Gordon, as he got to victory lane, he bawled crying and called it one of the greatest days of his life. Gordon had finally broken through with his first NASCAR Winston Cup victory. In August, he would score an even more stunning victory. Gordon started third in the Brickyard 400. He led 93 laps, 
and was able to win a late race duel with Ernie Irvin when Irvin had cut a tire. Gordon held off the hard-charging Brett Bodine, and the Indiana boy picked up the inaugural Brickyard 400 win, a coveted victory that almost every driver had hoped to get. It was a great moment for Gordon as he won the Brickyard 400 and fulfilled a childhood dream of winning at Indy. Gordon, of course, had got his start in the open wheel cars, the USAC midgets, and silver crown cars, and had a dream of one day driving in the Indy 500. But due to sponsorship issues and a test session down south, he decided to go stock car racing. Gordon always said that he never thought that he'd get the run at the historic Indianapolis Motor Speedway. So it meant a lot to him when he won the Brickyard 400. Gordon kept up the momentum in the back end of the 1994 season. He had a ninth place run at Watkins Glen. He was sixth at the Southern 500, getting his best ever finish at Darlington. He finally picked up a top 10 at North Wilkesboro and finished eighth. And he had a strong run going at Rockingham, leading 101 laps, but finished 29th after an accident. So the 1994 season had seen Jeff Gordon get to victory lane and be at the top 10 in points. He looked forward to the 1995 season. He would once again, of course, be back driving the number 24 DuPont Automotive's refinishes Chevrolet. But there was a lot of excitement as Chevy would be switching to the Monte Carlo brand for the 1995 season. And Gordon had hoped for big things. As the 95 season beckoned, few probably thought that Gordon would be a serious contender for the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. After all, it was only his third season. And almost everybody thought that it would be Dale Earnhardt picking up his eighth NASCAR Winston Cup championship and breaking him with a tie with the King. Most thought that Gordon would have to show more consistency. And certainly Gordon had struggled, especially at the short tracks, tracks like North Wilkesboro and Bristol. Gordon had struggled to get good finishes. And there were many questions if he could have the consistency to be the champion in 1995. Few people thought that Gordon would be a serious contender, but he put everyone on notice to start the season. They had a strong car to Daytona 500, but a problem in the pits knocked him out of contention. Gordon dominated the next week at Rockingham. Although he had mechanical problems at Richmond, the following week at Atlanta, he had won again, this time outdueling Bobby Labonte. He had a strong car at Darlington, but got caught up in a restart crash. And then, of all things, he picked up his first ever career short track win at Bristol. He had won three of the first six races to start the season, but he'd also had two finishes of 32nd or worse. Gordon continued his strong role by running well at tracks that previously had not been good to him. He'd picked up top three finishes at Wilkesboro, Martinsville, and Talladega in Sonoma. After a DNF at Charlotte, he finished 33rd, and then he had trouble at Pocono. He was dominating the race and leading on a rate, lace rate restart when he missed a shift. The missed shift dropped him all the way back to 16th position, and his teammate, Terry Labonte, won the race. Gordon finished second at Michigan, and then he picked up back-to-back wins, picking up his first career restrictor plate race win and his first win at Daytona, winning the July race to Pepsi 400. The following week, Gordon had a practice crash and first-round qualifying at the New Hampshire Motor Speedway. He started from the 21st position and won at Loudoun, picking up back-to-back victories. Gordon would continue with an absolute tear, having 14 straight top 10 finishes, including nine top fives. He won the Southern 500 at Darlington, 
beating out Dale Hernard and Rusty Wallace. He also picked up a win in the Do- Dover Fall race, giving him his seventh win of the season. With a third-place run at Wilkesboro, Gordon had survived some of the tracks that likely would cause challenges to him, such as Wilkesboro and Martinsville. He left Wilkesboro with a 302-point lead over Earnhardt. Earnhardt closed the gap as Gordon struggled over the final four races of the season. He struggled at Rockingham, ran into mechanical problems at Charlotte, had a good run at Phoenix, and struggled at Atlanta. But still, he clinched the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship at Atlanta with a 32nd place finish, beating Dale Earnhardt by 34 points. He'd had just one top five in the final four races of the season, but he had become the second youngest NASCAR Winston Cup champion, only behind Red Baron, the first ever champion in NASCAR Winston Cup racing, and by far the youngest champion of the modern era in NASCAR racing. Gordon had seemingly come out of nowhere in 1995. Remember, in 1994, he'd had just two victories and finished eighth in points. Nobody saw a championship coming for Gordon, and this certainly stroked the rivalry between Jeff Gordon and Dale Earnhardt. Although they never really had their primes overlap, I think there was a lot of bitterness from Earnhardt fans to Gordon that he won the championship in 1995. Almost everyone felt that it was going to be Dale Earnhardt's season in 1995, and he'd pick up that eighth championship and break a tie with Richard Petty. But Gordon was just simply a little bit more consistent, and Earnhardt knew that Gordon was going to be trouble if he was going to win another championship. We already discussed the 1996 season for Jeff Gordon. It was a season of extreme disappointment and a season of a lot of highs too as well. When you win 10 races but miss out on the championship, you have to be disappointed. And there were plenty of races to point and look back on if things had gone just a little bit differently that Gordon could have been the champion. Even despite his problems at Charlotte, the team still had a one-point lead on Terry Labonte going into Rockingham. It was one of their most disappointing runs of the season, and it gave Labonte the lead and the momentum to beat out Gordon for the championship. As Gordon looked forward to the 1997 Winston Cup season, he had 19 career victories. He wanted to get back and win the championship. He also wanted to get off to a good start. The team had struggled to get off to a good start in the 1996 season, and although they overcame it and eventually got the points lead, it was a challenge as they seemed to be trying to dig out of a hole the entire season. So a big goal would be to get off to a strong start in 1997, to try to have less mechanical problems, and to try to be smarter to try to avoid crashes and putting himself in a bad position. The 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup champion was Terry Labonte. That season, he had two wins, 21 top five finishes, 24 top tens, four poles, had an average finish of 8.2 for all the races, and had three did-not finishes. He beat out his teammate, Jeff Gordon, by 37 points for the championship. He had delivered back-to-back Winston Cup championships for car owner Rick Hendrick, but interestingly enough, by two different drivers. His teammate, Jeff Gordon, had won the championship in 1995, and in 1996, Terry Labonte was the champion, and Jeff Gordon was the runner-up. Along with all those top fives, he had had seven second-place finishes that season and five third-place finishes. Much like his teammate Jeff Gordon, Terry Labonte's season got off to a rough start. At the Daytona 500, he had a strong car and led 44 laps, but an overheating problem relegated him to a 24th place finish four laps down. The next week at Rockingham, Labonte won the pole and he dominated 
the early to mid stages of the race, leading 198 of the first 235 laps. Unfortunately, a blown engine resulted in a did not finish with a 34th place finish. After two races, Terry Labonte was mired in 30th in points, but he would do excellent over the next 14 races, earning 13 top 10 finishes. At Richmond, he started from the pole and finished 8th. At Atlanta, he started third, led 100 laps, and finished second. At the Trans-South 400 in Darlington, Labonte started 17th and worked his way up to the fifth position. He equaled his season-best finish at Bristol, starting from the outside pole, and in the rain-shortened race, finishing second to his teammate Jeff Gordon. The following race at North Wilkesboro would be a very special day for Terry Labonte. He would be tying Richard Petty's streak of most consecutive starts in NASCAR Winston Cup racing. He had a special paint scheme with a silver-plated car and calling him the Iron Man. He won the pole for the race and dominated the race, leading 167 laps, and he held off his teammate Jeff Gordon on a late restart to pick up his first win of the season. The following week at Martinsville, Terry Labonte would set the all-time record for most consecutive NASCAR Winston Cup starts by a driver. He would start seventh and lead 16 laps, but unfortunately, he would fall out of the race due to brake problems and complete 480 laps and finish 24th. He bounced back the following week at Talladega, missing the big wreck and finishing fourth. At Sonoma, he captured the pole position, led 13 laps, and picked up another top five finish, finishing fifth. At the Coca-Cola 600 at Charlotte on Memorial Day weekend, Labonte finished third. The next week at Dover, he started fourth and picked up a second-place finish. At Pocono, Terry Labonte finished seventh. At Michigan, he picked up another second-place finish, leading six laps. At the Pepsi 400 in July at Daytona, Terry Labonte started 12th, did not lead any laps, but picked up a second-place finish in the rain-shortened event. The next week at Loudoun, he worked his way up from the 23rd position, led 54 laps, and finished 6th. After the Loudoun race, Terry Labonte had got the points lead for the first time that season, and as we had talked about earlier, had completed an impressive streak of finishing in the top 10 in, thir in 13 of the next 14 races. At Pocono, it was a tough day for Terry Labonte. He finished a lap down in 16th place. At Talladega, Terry Labonte was caught up in the big wreck and finished 24th. He did not finish the race, um, but the race only went nine laps longer due to impending darkness. This was a big break for Labonte as he was the highest finishing driver who was involved in the final wreck that preceded the final caution. This was fortunate for Labonte as other drivers didn't have an opportunity to repair their cars, and it's hard to know if Labonte would have been able to repair his car if the race had gone the full distance. But certainly, being involved in a wreck and not being able to finish the race and still getting a 24th place finish was extremely helpful. He dropped a second in points. The following week, at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway for the Brickyard 400, Terry Labonte came home third. And after Jeff Gordon had a did not finish, he was back in the points lead. He had another impressive run on a road course at Watkins Glen, finishing second. He started back in 22nd place at Michigan, but finished third. It was another top five run at Bristol. Labonte started third and finished fifth. The Southern 500 was up next, and this would be a difficult day for Labonte. In the second half of the race, he began to experience overheating problems and fell off the pace. He eventually finished the race nine laps down, 
and finished in 26th position. Jeff Gordon had won the race, and that let allowed him to create a sizable dent in Labonte's points lead. Labonte bounced back the next week at Richmond to finish fifth, but he would run into problems at Dover. He had a strong car and led 57 laps, but past the halfway point, Labonte experienced two different situations where he had flat tires. It relegated him to four laps down and a 21st place finish. Jeff Gordon had taken the points lead from Labonte. At Martinsville, Terry Labonte finished a close second to Jeff Gordon, but it was his work of the crew that may have helped win him win him the championship. Labonte had an issue with the clutch assembly on his car, and his crew was able to fix it under caution and only lose one lap. Terry Labonte eventually made up his lap and was right on Jeff Gordon's back bumper at a final restart, but Le- Gordon hung on to win the race. The following week at Wilkesboro, Labonte started 16th but finished 5th. But as he left North Wilkesboro, he found himself 111 points behind Jeff Gordon in the championship. But everything would turn at Charlotte. Labonte started from the 16th position, but he led 129 laps and made a late race pass on Mark Martin to pick up the victory. Meanwhile, Jeff Gordon had a serious mechanical problem and finished outside the top 30. Gordon's sizable points lead was whittled to just a single point, and the next race would be at Rockingham. If you remember, in the spring, Labonte had dominated the early stages of the Rockingham race until he had an engine problem. Gordon had an engine problem much earlier in the race. Taylor Bonney started from the 19th position, but would eventually finish third. Jeff Gordon could only muster a 12th place finish, and Labonte had a 30-plus point lead in the championship heading into the final two races. At Phoenix, on Friday, Taylor Bonney was involved in a serious praxis accident. He ended up breaking a bone in his left hand, and wonder, many wondered how well he'd be able to hold up driving the entire race. Then he struggled and qualified and had to start all the way back in 30th position. But Labonte gritted it out on race day. He actually led 61 laps and came home with a third-place finish. Jeff Gordon finished set fifth, and Labonte had picked up even more points. He would simply need to go to Atlanta and finish eighth or better to clinch his second career NASCAR Winston Cup championship. Labonte did what he needed to do at Atlanta. He qualified third, and he made sure he led some laps early in the race, and he hung around the top six to seven the entire race. As the laps wound down, it was clear that as long as Labonte could stay in the top eight or so, that he would be the champion for the 1996 season. He safely piloted the Kellogg Chevrolet to a fifth-place finish and beat Jeff Gordon for the championship by 37 points. It was an early birthday present for Terry Labonte, who would turn 40 years old just a week later after the Napa 500 in Atlanta. It was also an unbelievable family moment as his brother, Bobby Labonte, picked up his first victory of the 1996 season. There was a memorable victory lap where Terry Labonte and Bobby Labonte both circled the track in celebration of Bobby Labonte's victory and Terry Labonte's second career NASCAR Winston Cup championship. It's interesting when you look back on the season of Labonte and his championship. Obviously, he had nowhere near the amount of wins that Gordon had. Jeff Gordon had won 10 races, and Terry Labonte had won just two. But they had an equal number of top five and top ten finishes. Terry Labonte had two less DNFs than Jeff Gordon. His did not finish as were a 34th at Rockingham in the spring race when he blew an engine. A 24th place finish at Martinsville due to a brake problem and a 24th place finish in the July Talladega race. He was fortunate that at Martinsville, at that time only 36 cars started, and that he had his 
brake problem relatively late in the race and still got to finish 24th despite being 20 laps down and being unable to finish the race. At Talladega, as we spoke about earlier, he got involved in that massive accident, but he was the highest placed driver to finish. Um, excuse me. He was the highest placed driver who was involved in the crash and did not finish. Labonic had a couple other mediocre finishes, including a 16th place run at Pocono, and then those late season problems at Darlington and Dover. But again, he avoided the big problems. And part of Labonte's fortune was that a couple of his brig problems happened at tracks that have high attrition. He had overheating problems at Darlington, but still managed to finish 26th. And his tire problems at Dover, which had him relegated to a fourth place finish, was another high attrition track. It's interesting when you look back on the 1996 championship, because a lot of people talk about Labonte being more consistent than Gordon. The reality is they both had about the same amount of finishes outside the top 10 that season. But Labonte, when he had his DNFs, still was able to get much better finishes than Gordon. And that ultimately was the difference in the championship. Even though they had a big difference in wins, if you look at top three finishes, Terry Labonte had two wins, he had seven second place finishes, and he had five third place finishes. So if you total that up, he had an impressive 14 top three finishes in 31 races that season. It was a very popular victory in the garage area with Terry Labonte clinching his second NASCAR Winston Cup championship. It's interesting to look back at the career of Terry Labonte. He got his first career start driving for Billy Hagen in 1978. It was at the Southern 500 and he was driving at the number 92 car and he came home with an impressive fourth place finish. He also finished seventh at Richmond and ninth at Martinsville. In 1979, Taylor Bonney got to run the full season. He did not pick up any wins, but he finished 10th in points. 1980 would be a solid season for Bonney too as well. He would finish 8th in points, and he would get his first career NASCAR Winston Cup victory, winning the Southern 500 in very exciting fashion. So late in the race, there was a three-car duel for the lead between Benny Parsons, David Pearson, and Dare Earnhardt. They all got together in turn one with a few laps to go. Earnhardt and Parsons couldn't continue on, but Pearson was trying to limp around the track with a damage in a flat tire. But coming off of the fourth turn, Terry Labonte was able to swing around Pearson and beat him back to the caution flag. At that time, their races were not guaranteed to finish under the green flag. And Terry Labonte beat Pearson back to the start-finish line, took the caution, and made a couple more laps and won the race. In the 1981 through 1983 season, Terry Labonte picked up just one victory, winning the fall race at Rockingham, but he finished in the top five in points for all three seasons. This would set him up for the 1984 season. That season, Terry Labonte picked up two wins. He won from the pole in the summer race at Riverside, and he also won the Bristol Knights race, and after that race, he assumed the points lead. He also had 17 top five finishes, and 24 top 10s. He beat Harry Gant for the championship by 65 points. Performance fell off, fell off with Billy Hagen's team in 1985 and 1986. Taylor Bonney driving the number 44 car, just as he had done in the 1984 season, would win just one race each season, and he would finish 7th in points in 1985 and 12th in points in 1986. For the 1987 season, Taylor Bonney would go to drive for Junior Johnson. 
he would post four wins in three seasons with Junior Johnson and finish a respectable third, fourth, and tenth in points. But after the 1989 season, Terry Labonte moved on to drive for a new team. He would drive for the number one car for Richard Jackson. His time in that car got off to a great start. He finished second in the Daytona 500. This, of course, was the race that Dale Earnhardt was leading on the final lap when he had a tire problem in turns three and four and drifted up the racetrack. Derek Cope got the lead, and Terry Labonte chased Cope back to the start-finish line but could not make a pass. This would be Terry Labonte's best finish ever in a Daytona 500. For the rest of the season, he picked up four top five finishes, had nine top tens, and finished 18th in points. In 1991, Terry Labonte switched over to pilot the number 94 Sunoco-sponsored car for Billy Hagen. He had just one top five finish, had seven top tens, and finished a disappointing 18th in points. In 1992, it would be a bit of a bounce-back season for Labonte. Although he'd only have four top five finishes, he did get 17 top 10 finishes and finished eighth in points. In 1993... Taylor Bonney would still be driving for Billy Hagen, but now would be driving the number 14 car sponsored by Kellogg's. This was kind of a silver-looking car, um, and that season was a pretty rough year for Taylor Bonney. He scored no top five finishes, had 10 top 10 finishes, and finished 18th in points. So after a lot of success in his career, between 1990 and 1993, Taylor Bonney had not picked up any victories. His best points finish was eighth, and he had finished 15th or worse in the points three times. In 117 races, he had scored just nine top five finishes. He had 42 top tens, giving him a little bit more than a top 10 finish in one in every three races. Labonte was looking to get his career back on track, and he got a big break that he wanted. At the end of the 1993 season, Ricky Rudd decided to leave Hendrick Motorsports in the number five car and take his Tide sponsorship to start his own team with the number 10. Rick Hendrick tabbed Terry Labonte to drive the number five car and he brought over the Kellogg sponsorship. They changed the paint scheme a little bit from that 14 car and it had more of a primarily red, green, and yellow look with the famous Kellogg's rooster on the hood. The 1994 season would be an excellent season for Terry Labonte. He would pick up three wins, winning the spring race at North Wilkesboro and breaking a 135-race losing streak. He would also win the second uh, Richmond race of the season, which was run in September. In addition, he picked up a victory at Phoenix. He had six top five finishes, 14 top tens, and finished seventh in points. 1995 would be as equally a good a season for Terry Labonte. He won three races that season, winning the spring Richmond race, winning the first Pocono race when Jeff Gordon missed a shift, and picking up that exciting Bristol night race victory. So, of course, this was the Bristol night race in 1995 that was had a lengthy rain delay. After the rain delay, it was a very interesting, aggressive race. This was the race where early in the race, Dale Earnhardt had spun out Rusty Wallace and was penalized, and it was just an extremely physical race. Labonte was leading on the last lap, but his car seemed to be fading and Earnhardt seemed to be coming on. He had trouble dealing with lap traffic, and as he came out of the fourth turn, Earnhardt was right on Labonte's tail. He tapped Labonte halfway down the front straightaway, and Labonte skidded across the front stretch, crashed as he got across the start-finish line, and still won the race. 
The entire front of the car was completely torn up and the radiator was broken. As water spewed out of the car, Terry Labonte pulled his mangled car in the victory lane and it scored one of the most improbable victories in the history of Bristol. Although he did not pick up any more wins that season, he had 14 top five finishes, 17 top tens, had captured one pole, and had finished sixth in points. Earlier in the episode, we discussed the nuts and bolts of the 1996 NASCAR Winston Cup Championship season for Terry Labonte. He clinched the championship at the Napa 500 in Atlanta just six days before his 40th birthday. It had been a remarkable journey between Terry Labonte's two championships. He won his first championship just two days after his 28th birthday at Riverside in 1984. In between the two championships, there had been many highs and lows. Labonte struggled after winning the championship, driving two more seasons for Billy Hagan. After that, he moved on to drive for Junior Johnson. And although he picked up a handful of victories, he never was a serious contender for the NASCAR Winston Cup Championship. The early 90s would lead to more struggles. He drove one season for Richard Jackson and three seasons for Billy Hagan. He did not win any races and only finished to the top 10 in points one time. In 1994, he got the opportunity in a lifetime to drive the number five car for Rick Hendrick and a chance to revitalize his career. He broke a 135 race losing streak by winning at North Wilkesboro and picked up two more wins in that 1994 season, placing seventh in points. In 1995, he won three times and finished sixth in points. And in 1996, he had won his second NASCAR Winston Cup championship. Thank you for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed a look back at the careers of Mark Martin, Dale Earnhardt, Dale Jarrett, Jeff Gordon, and Terry Labonte. I also have to give a shout out to the website racing-reference.info. It's an outstanding resource, which has many statistics for NASCAR drivers and beyond. You'll find career statistics for drivers, along with in-depth race reviews as well. For the Stock Car Racing Time Machine podcast, this is Tim Naiman. Have a great day, and we'll see you next time.